0: Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison. I'm going to be your host for today's edition. And I'm really delighted to say that with me is esteemed journalist, Mr. David Emmett of com. Hello, Mr. David Emmett, how are you?
1: Uh, I am uh, not so bad, Mr. Neil Morrison. Um, I got to ride my motorbike to a race, and getting to ride my motorbike to a race is always awesome.
0: It is indeed, yes. And, uh, I say esteemed journalist. You were quite literally steaming. I think when I last <laughs> saw you back in, uh, back on Sunday and not steaming in the sense that you had, uh, retreated to the bar in light of all those delays, steaming that you had been in pit lane pretty much all up, all morning and afternoon were soaking. And, uh, yeah, the steam was rising up off you when you entered the, the media center after that. But, uh, yeah, obviously this episode is going to be about the British Grand Prix, uh, the race. And essentially that never was, I guess. And uh, a disappointment for all concerned, everyone watching at home, especially the people. I think there was around 50,000 people showed up on Sunday at Silverstone, which was uh, quite a remarkable attendance considering everything that had happened on Saturday and considering the word genuine concerns as to whether there was going to be racing or not. Um, David, what happened? I guess there's a, a list of factors that we can attribute to, uh, to the races not running um where where do we start
1: well i suppose we start back in february when um uh, when the track was resurfaced um, because that was the root cause of all of the problems what happened was um everything was fine on friday except the bumps there were lots and lots of bumps uh and the bumps were supposed to have been removed then on saturday during fp4 there was a sudden very very heavy downpour uh that left some standing water on the track and first of all alex, uh alex Rintz bailed um uh, down the back of the hangar straight because the the water was especially down sort of like the southern end of the track the uh uh the end of hangar straight into stowe and um around vale uh the rest of the track was almost Pretty much dry, really. I mean, it was a little bit moist and, uh, but, or a little bit damp, and that was about, and that was about it. But it was uh, there was standing water uh, around the other ends. Alex Rince bailed, then Tito Rabat crashed, and while he was sat in the gravel, Franco Morbidelli crashed, and Franco's bike slammed into. Tito Rabat and basically well almost destroyed his right leg he um, uh, broke his femur broke a tibia and fibula uh, nearly, uh, there were concerns because he, because Tito was bleeding so badly, there were concerns that he severed a femoral artery, which is a, a very, very dangerous thing to happen. Uh, yeah, life
0: that threatening thing to happen, basically.
1: Yeah. Basically, you ble- you bleed out within a couple of minutes. If that, uh if that happens, unless there's help. Well, the session was delayed. There was, there were a lot of problems because they took, it, uh, Tito took a long time to actually stabilize. Uh, Finally, they got him going and they got him uh, uh, and they transported him to hospital. Sunday came. We knew that it was going to rain. The forecast was that it was going to rain. Uh, Silverstone hoped that, or the circuit hopes that it wouldn't be so, uh, hoped that the track would be able to cope with uh, persistent rain. Uh, and then it had been, you know, just a downpour, a heavy, a very heavy rain, which had caused the problems. But as it turned out, um the track couldn't cope with persistent rain either. Uh They moved the MotoGP start time to 11.30 uh, in, a avoid, uh, in, in an attempt to uh, sort of, you know, avoid the worst, the heaviest rain, which was due around one o'clock, which is the original race time. We went to the grid. We walked around a little bit. The riders went out, went out on their sighting lap. A bunch of them jumped off their bikes after their sighting lap, went straight to Carmelo and Carlos Espaleta and uh, said... We can't race in this; it's too wet. There's standing water all the way, all the way around the, uh, uh, all the way around the track. We're aquaplaning all the way around the track. Uh, it's not safe, uh, so they called it off and decided to wait it out. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and eventually we had to give up.
0: Kind of reminded me of uh, back when I was a kid or when I was a teenager, uh, sitting on the the side of the road waiting for a TT race to start. I had that kind of feel where there was an indefinite delay and you're looking at the sky constantly. And uh, this kind of case, it was putting the head out of the media center just to see how the rain was intensifying um, and how intense it was. Um, And it was kind of clear that it wasn't really that heavy at a lot of intervals. Um, especially if you think back to 2015, the last time we had a wet race at Silverstone, I wouldn't say it was particularly wetter on the Sunday uh, than it was back in in 2015. Um, Let's clear one or two things up first. Were the riders wimps for not racing?
1: Uh, Absolutely, 100% not, because aquaplaning... I mean, basically, aquaplaning means loss of control. Riders are perfectly happy to take a lot of risk as long as they believe that they are in control. Aquaplaning, you have no control. You become a passenger. Uh, you can't steer the bike. You can't brake. You can't accelerate. You can't do anything. You just go straight until uh, until the tyres grip again. Um And you have to hope that you can sort of, you know, stay on. So um that was basically what happened. That was basically they... Because the other thing is, once they also fear a repeat of Tito Rabat's crash. I think Tito's crash had a really big effect in making them aware of the fact that if one rider goes down and another one comes into the gravel, uh, because you also you can't steer. If there's normally, if a rider crashes um, and another one crashes, then the other then the second rider can sort of he can either slow down or uh, he can you know sort of try to avoid the second rider in the gravel but there was just no way of having any control once you lost control you lost control immediately and without any warning and it could have been at any point in the track so it was just uh it was well we can call them wimps now um and then if they had raced and if someone had been killed which was a, a, a real possibility uh then we would all be calling for the heads of whoever decided allowed this race to go on
0: yeah, and when you think back to Rinz's crash on Saturday, he jumped off because he went to feel the front brake. He said he couldn't feel anything. So he was heading towards Stowe Corner at whatever it was, I think 130 miles, 135 miles an hour, and had no front brake because basically he was aquaplaning, skating over the top of the surface, off the puddles, um, without any sort of control, without any feel of being able to, um, well, to slow down. And that's why you had to bail off. So you imagine if something, something does happen in front of you, you reach for the brakes, there's nothing there. Well, you're not really in a position to do anything at all, are you?
1: No, you can't, I mean, you can't even, um, put any steering inputs in i mean you can't sort of you know you literally have no control of the bike there's nothing you can you just have to wait until the tire starts to grip again and then you can try and turn the bike or you try and break the bike or whatever but if you try and break the bike and you hit another puddle then you start um uh, you start aquaplaning again uh you know Rince jumped off i think he said he was doing two between 220 and 230 kilometers an hour um, that is uh, a lot of... That's plenty fast to be going to, you know, jump off a moving motorcycle.
0: And it's one thing jumping off when you're by yourself, as he did on Sunday. Uh, sorry, on Saturday, on qualifying day. Um, okay, he wasn't by himself on the track, but there was no one next to him at that point. But say that had happened and he was 8th in the group. Or, yeah. Or 10th and there were a couple of guys ahead of him. Where would it, his bike would have gone?
1: Yeah, the first lap. 23, you know, just imagine... 23 riders because on the first lap uh, going into Stowe uh, the riders are all within I don't know second and a half, two seconds of each other it, the visibility would have been absolutely zero because of the spray you know, you wouldn't have been able to see anyone fall in front of you, uh, you would have know, wouldn't have known what was coming behind you, it would have been absolute carnage um, it might have been alright but if it went wrong it would have been absolute carnage
0: yeah and there's no it's just so difficult to predict with twenty-three guys on track at the same time how it would have how it would have panned out. Really, I don't think we wanted to know whether it was a risk worth taking, especially when you think back to Tito and, as we said, it was a pretty grisly injury. When we were talking to certain members of P- Tito's team on Saturday night, the picture that they painted was one of just total agony. It was awful. It was, it was really horrible. Not something you wanted to see. Uh, I think you could hear him uh, screaming in pain, you know, from the trackside cameras. And I mean, it had to be said on Saturday night, we were, we were, we were sort of thinking his career could be in in some jeopardy because if you think that his artery's been cut, then you assume the worst. And it was quite miraculous to see him up and walking about, taking his first steps less than 24 hours of the incident occurring. But, um, yeah, you still have to wonder whether he's going to be able to get back, uh, this season for sure.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I I suspect I suspect that he will be back this season, but that's only because he's completely mental. It is absolutely stupid trying to come back as fast as he the, uh, as he is. Uh, you know, walking on a shattered because as I understand it, it was an open uh, it was an open fracture. So the you know the the his femur was poking through his leg. Um, so they've pinned his leg, pinned his femur, they've pinned his his tib and fib. Um, uh, sewed him back up again. And he, you know, the the first thing he does is get up and start walking around again, which is, I mean, it's Wolverine levels of, um, levels of, levels of recovery. It's just, it's, it's not normal. Especially when
0: his right leg is twice the size of his left leg. (laughs) It's so (laughs) swollen. I mean, it's just incredible, really. Um, another thing to clear up was there a chance that we could have raced at any point? Because, a couple of the riders, Cal Croce was one of them. Uh, I think Jack Miller was the same when he was being interviewed by Simon Crayford on, on the grid. A couple of the riders said that there were certain points during the afternoon where the rain wasn't that heavy or it, it almost stopped, basically, and a race would have been possible. Um, what, what happened there?
1: Well, I mean, I spent... Probably about five hours in Pit Lane on Sunday, I was out there probably in in total about an hour and an hour and a quarter or something and what was happening was the rain got a little bit heavier and then it would ease off and it would almost stop It never really stopped it did really stop until about six o'clock at night. It would ease off and then it would come back again and and i I think there were there were probably windows of about ten ten maybe fifteen minutes. Uh, where you could have sort of started a race, but I, the trouble is because it was coming in, the rain was sort of, you know, uh, you know, varying in intensity. It was coming and going and coming and going. Uh, and so. Yeah, all right. We could have gone out for a uh, for a fast uh, uh, for, uh, for a for a quick restart. Um, the riders would have one of I, I think Mike Webb said uh, the, the the procedure would have been that they would have had ten minutes uh, ten minutes of practice before they started, and then in for a quick start procedure, the wet start procedure, where basically uh, it's one mechanic and bikes running uh, on the grid before they uh, go up for a warm up lap and then start the race. But by that time. It would have been raining heavily again, and they would have called it off. So um, they could have tried, but I think it would have been—I think it would have been doomed to failure because you saw. I mean, you could see the amount of water standing on the track every time the safety car went round. Uh, there's, you, I mean, it was very—it was well, I suppose it was quite entertaining watching Franco and Chini and Loris Caparossi, you know, nearly wiping out all the time going round in the uh, in the in the BMW safety car. Um, for the fans it might have been nice for the fans if they had sort of attempted it ridden around and then abandoned it again but it might have been really frustrating for the fans to ride around and have them abandoned again uh, so it was just um it was never there was never really a, a really clear window where you could definitely uh where we were there, there was never a window where we could have had a race but there was definitely a few windows where we could have um, you know, gone through the motions of pretending to start a race.
0: Yeah, had half a race even, if we really pushed it. And that uh, was one of the things that, that Marquez said on, on Sunday evening. You could be out there riding maybe on the third or fourth lap, um, head down along the hangar straight, suddenly the heavens open again and it starts really raining intensively. And then suddenly you're in a situation like Saturday um, the same situation that uh, Rins, Rabat, Morbidelli, and a few others found themselves in.
1: I think also, um, race direction could have pulled a uh, could have red flagged the FP4 session faster because it was fairly obviously quite quickly that um, uh, conditions uh, conditions got bad really really quickly. Perhaps if they'd have pulled the reg flat out thirty seconds earlier or, or, or a minute earlier. Uh, probably only 30 seconds it, it might have made a difference it might have um uh it might have helped but yeah i mean the weather was changing sort of fast enough that it didn't that it would have made it very very difficult and i don't think even if even if they attempted a race i don't think it would have been last, lasted more than four perhaps five laps and that would have been uh that would have been it because as i say the track, the track wasn't drying out at all. It never really stopped raining. There were times where it was, it was really down to a very, very fine drizzle, uh, almost a mist sort of thing. But um, uh, it never stopped completely, and it never gave the, 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 the track a, a chance to properly, properly dry out.
0: Yes. Now, one other thing to talk about, um, to clear up essentially that our listeners might uh, be questioning or wondering: uh, Monday was a bank holiday uh, in England. Uh, the Monday just passed there. Um, everyone was in England. There was not another race until the weekend after this one. We we're recording this on the Thursday after the British Grand Prix. Um, it seems that there was some flex. We heard uh, Ducati team manager David Hrdozzi coming out and saying that Ducati was in favour of staying behind an extra day, changing their travel plans and having the race on Monday. Why didn't we postpone the race today as we did in Qatar back in two thousand and? Eight or nine was I, I think it was 2009
1: perhaps yeah 2009 I think um why didn't we postpone until t- well why didn't we um do what they did at the Qatar that uh, because Silverstone isn't as rich as Qatar uh, as far as I know uh, Qatar bore all of the financial burden of the changes uh but that's because he's owned by a gas billionaire you know someone who who, who may who um is obscenely wealthy and who basically runs that circuit is a private hobby. Uh, Silverstone is a commercial enterprise and a going concern, and they have to make a profit. They could have run it on Monday. I mean, there was a lot of reasons, logistics reasons. Stuart Higgs, clerk of the course, uh, which is uh, basically uh, the the person in charge of the race, he had all of the medical uh, marshals and all of the, the... He had the medical staff and the marshals in place they could have been there on Monday. So that infrastructure was there, but they would have had to have, have arranged uh, security staff. I think there, I, I forget the numbers. It's, it's, it's many hundreds, if not a thousand security staff all around the circuit to manage it. People would have needed an extra, an extra night in a hotel. Uh, a lot of people would have left on, on Sunday night. A lot of people would have needed a, at least a Sunday and probably a Monday and arranging that kind of, you know, just arranging for people to stay. Uh, they need a lot of truck. There were the factories needed, well, some of the factories, certainly Yamaha, Suzuki, uh, I think KTM uh, and Honda, but I'm not entirely sure, had uh, have a factory test uh, down, down at Aragon and they had to get down there. Uh, it's 2000... 2000- uh, 2000 kilometers there are 300 trucks which are all booked onto ferries on the monday um uh, rearranging those bookings would have been extremely um, uh, extremely difficult it's actually it's much easier to um change the flight plan of a especially uh, booked privately booked uh, freight 747 i think there's 3 or 4 that um uh, the dawn use than it is to actually rebook Three hundred trucks um, onto uh, on, onto different travel arrangements, onto different ferries, different train, uh, different trains. Okay,
0: so logistics was basically is basically what it was.
1: Uh, yeah, but ba- yeah, basically logistics, and also um, I think certainly certainly for Yamaha, the, uh, the the test was much more important than than trying to run a race on on Monday because. Uh, the, the test is about the rest of the season. The test at Aragon is about salvaging the rest of the season. Uh, now, Maverick was having a really, really strong weekend. You'd have to say, he, if it had been a dry weekend, then you'd have to say the Maverick might have even have been a favourite to win the race.
0: Yeah, that was Maverick's race. Oh, yeah. He would have faced pretty strong competition from Crutch Lodovicius or... Rossi, Marquez all those guys but uh yeah f- certainly in terms of dry pace.
1: Yeah, in terms of dry pace there was no contest. It was Maverick. Uh, the Ducati's were actually pretty strong. Both Lorenzo and Dovizioso looked good. It looked like Marquez was struggling a little bit. He he had some speed but not really consistent pace. Um so yeah, if it had been dry then then I think, you know, Maverick could have won and put an end to their uh, their, their streak of shame uh of you know 21 21 races without a win um but it's much more important to them to actually win uh you know to to get back to winning ways rather than look into winning a race at a track where they are strong
0: so let's uh, let's address the elephant in the room there's obviously several uh, reasons why this all happened but i mean the track was resurfaced in february or july in january uh, early february it's clear that the issues with standing water. Was it the tarmac that was used? Was it the manner in which uh, the, the sur- surface was laid down? Um, what, what could have been the issue
1: here? There are lots of things that could have been the issue. It's not so much the, act- the actual through drainage of the circuit sort of thing. Uh, what's happening is water is just not coming off of the track. Um, why is that happening? I I don't know. I don't know. I spoke to Jano family on uh, uh, on Sunday well on Saturday and Sunday and he said yeah they, the, the process used well it it went wrong basically something went wrong who is responsible for that it's impossible to say without proper investigation something which silver silverstone is going to do uh, was it, uh, the, was it the contractor who, who didn't do the work properly? Was it Silverstone for not over, uh, overseeing the work properly? Was it not, was the, was, was the tender document not drawn up pr- properly? Were the specs, uh, given to the contractor not, uh, not correct? Were they just unlucky with weather? Because, um, it was laid down shortly before a massive cold snap and a very, very unseasonal cold snap in, in the UK. Did they have, People right, right, using the circuit too uh, too quickly. It's really honestly, it, 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 it's really really difficult to say where the blame lies. I mean, something went wrong. Um, someone along the line made a wrong decision, and so we've ended up without a British Grand Prix and Silverstone. I mean, whoever is to blame, Silverstone come off looking pretty bad.
0: Yeah, for sure. It was interesting reading some comments that uh, Carmelo Spalletti. Made um, this week to I think a Spanish publication. It might have been a marca, the sports daily from uh, from Madrid. In those comments, he was saying that um, at the moment there isn't a procedure um, by which the FIM regulates work that is being done to a track or a track surface that is on the MotoGP calendar. Could this be something, or should this be something that um, Dorna or the FIM take uh, greater care with in the future? Should they should they have sent someone when the resurface is Sorry, when the resurfacing is being done to ensure that it's done to the correct standards, that everything should be in its right place in case we have an incident like or a weekend like we've just had.
1: Definitely a good idea. I mean, the FIM has a a set of circuit uh, circuit standards. Uh, The circuit standards describe lots of different things. Uh, but mostly it's track markings it's uh, safety features and uh, that sort of thing also for example proximity to a trauma unit that sort of thing uh, but there's nothing in the specs about you know asphalt and the way it's laid and all the rest of it that has traditionally been left to circuits and circuits have traditionally uh, tended to use uh, use because you know building and designing race tracks is actually is a very very specialist um uh, occupation Actually, overseeing those the, the resurfacing of tracks tends to be done by uh, people with very very deep knowledge of, of, of racing circuits and racing circuits aren't the same as roads. They have very very different uh, requirements. So I think it would be I, I think all tracks would benefit from the FIM having a a circuit design consultant who can uh, who understands the process and who can advise. Uh, oversee a project and advise a project and, and uh, tell people how, how not to do it uh, or how to do it and how not to do it and avoid the mistakes which which we ended up with. So, yeah, I think it's a good idea. Um, I hope they do it. I think, you know, in the end, everyone everyone benefits, uh, benefits from sharing expertise.
0: One of the things that race director Mike Webb said when he was having this press conference or the press conference to, to confirm the cancellation of the event um, on Sunday is that it's really difficult to, to test um, a circuit. Some quite some people, some journalists were asking whether uh, they needed to have a test at Silverstone next year if there is a new surface or if the surface is relayed um, to test it in the wet before we go there to make sure that the the mistakes of, whatever mistakes there may have been in this process that has, has resulted in this outcome, um, to avoid those mistakes being repeated. Um someone was saying about possibly doing like a wet test, like the test we did at Qatar earlier in the year. But that doesn't really, that's not really as easy as it seems.
1: Uh, no, exactly. He said he was, um, uh, he had actually been surprised at how difficult it was to, to get enough water on the track at Qatar uh, to make a significant um, impact on it, which to an extent is exactly what you want. I mean... And that um, happened this year, right? That was yeah, this Yes, year at Qatar. That, that, that happened this year. And in fact, a lot of the riders basically said that... Um, uh, Uh, all that happened was everything got filthy because there was enough water on there to dig the dirt up but not enough to actually make it... um uh, make it particularly wet. Uh, they put uh, they expended an enormous amount of effort in in making that track wet. Now it's different in the desert um, where it doesn't rain very much. Uh, at Silverstone, what you could do is wait for it to rain because this may come it's as a shock. Yes, that's <laughs> it may come as a shock to some of our our listeners, and they may want to be sitting down for this. But it has been known <laughs> to rain in the United Kingdom from time to time. But, but again, that means. You have to wait for it to rain. You have to have a MotoGP bike or bikes available, standing by, ready to go racing. Uh, you have to have MotoGP riders standing by, ready to go racing. You have to have nothing else booked for that particular weekend um, or that particular day that uh, that the track is particular wet. Uh, it's particularly particularly wet. Uh, you have to hope that it rains, you know, heavily enough. Um, these are all contingencies. It's not very. It's not simple to actually organise a test. I mean, it's not impossible. Again, it's just a question of throwing vast amounts of money at at a problem. Um, And and Silverstone
0: have been quite open over the weekend that they haven't been in the best bill of financial health recently, right?
1: No, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, most most European circuits are not financially... Uh, well, they're not financially rosy. They they manage. I think, I mean, for example, Aston is one I know quite well. Aston is uh, financially... Healthy. They can manage everything. You know, they make a profit. They do quite well. I think Silverstone turns a profit as well. But it's it's uh, they're small profits over a year compared to the vast sums of money needed to actually do this. You know, if you're making a profit of uh, I don't know, uh, uh, several hundred thousand or perhaps a million uh, a million pounds, whatever it might be. Uh, That money, you can suck that money up very, very quickly just trying to organize, just trying to organize a test, just having lots of people waiting around flying stuff, uh, you know, uh, flying bikes in, flying mechanics and crew chiefs in, uh, flying a test team in. Uh, This is just organizing everything. that would suck up a very, very large amount of money in a very, very short, uh, short period of time, and that is not that could be the difference between you know Silverstone turning a profit and Silverstone struggling in the future. So, yeah, it's not as it's it's not as simple as it uh, as it seems.
0: No, I'm not just saying this because I'm from the British is- Isles. Um, obviously, being Northern Irishman, uh, British Grand Prix essentially is kind of like my home race, but like Silverstone itself, the circuit. I absolutely love because you're always guaranteed three outstanding races Um, of all the tracks that we have. I think it's, well, I think it's the one that produces the best racing. And I think it's like Philip Island, Magello. You can normally be guaranteed a pretty fun and dramatic uh, afternoon of entertainment Uh, whenever you go there. No, it's maybe not um, up to much in terms of uh, spectating trackside. Perhaps the facilities aren't quite what um, some of the more... Uh, popular places in Central Europe or um, Southern Europe might be but still a pretty cool event uh, overall what does the future hold for the British Grand Prix and what does it hold for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone
1: that is (laughs) literally the million dollar question it's really, really difficult. It's really difficult to say. As you say, it's a fantastic event. The, the, uh, obviously there's the day of champions, which is involved. Uh, but even all of the entertainment around the, around the track, there's like a fairground and there's bands on, there's bands on every night. The campsite is a, is a proper party for a I've, um, and actually, uh, a, a proper, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the atmosphere, it, it, it's a party with a, with a, with a really generous, warm, friendly atmosphere, whereas not like, um, uh, uh, other tracks which shall remain la- nameless where you're lucky to escape with your life afterwards but uh, it, 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 it's a great event and as you say it's hey, a it's, not that bad Dave. A, come <laughs> on <laughs> oh dear. yes no well, they, they it, it's, it's always uh, entertaining to leave the circuit ass and and, and drive past them um, uh, you know things on fire which probably shouldn't be on fire um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, and as you That's say, not it's not a drug a fact- preference, by the way. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It is a proper circuit as well. It's a proper Grand Prix circuit. It's big. Um, it's fast. It challenges, uh, a MotoGP bike. I made the mistake of, um, uh, expressing a preference for Silverstone over Donington on Twitter the other day and igniting the usual flame war between the Donington fans and the Silverstone fans uh donington is better it's better just because of the physical layout it's you know you you can see much more of the track but silverstone is uh and the facilities at at silverstone would be much better but again it's it's a chicken and egg situation they don't make enough money to upgrade the facilities uh and so because it's they don't upgrade the facilities people people um stay away i think it's it's very very difficult but this whole situation is is a real threat certainly to Silverstone um, because they're going to have to refund everyone for tickets. Uh, they'll probably have to refund everyone for their parking and all sorts of other costs. They might have to resurface again. They're going to have to get money from their insurers to uh, to cover this. Uh, insurers as, I mean, you know, in, the, the way that insurers make money is by making, is by First of all trying to get other people to pay before pay finally paying out themselves as a last resort, uh, so there's going to be a very long process in actually recovering money. as for redoing the you know resurfacing because I mean speaking to I spoke to a lot of people in the input lane both formally and just you know sort of informal chats, and very very high up people were very, very clear about unless it's resurfaced, we cannot come back here. Um, yeah,
0: Mike Webb said on the record on Sunday.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I had a lot of off the record comments to me saying we can't come back here if it's a, if it's like this. They it has to be resurfaced. I don't think Silverstone can bear those costs unless they get some help from somewhere. And so it's hard to see how there would be another a British Grand Prix at uh, at Silverstone, even though to my mind, you know, that's where it should be. Uh, and then the question is is donington ready to host a uh, a british grand prix and um well i've
0: heard about this little place it's uh supposed to be pretty fast it's just opening up in wales which could be uh, could be quite something
1: yeah let's let's hope let's hope they finish building soon eh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. Actually, there is a circuit in Wales which I'd quite like to uh, to see MotoGP go to, and that's Anglesey. But then I'm not entirely sure that it has the facilities to cope with a hundred thousand people. Um, uh, so give it, seeing as it's just basically perched on the edge of the island, and there's um, there's like three sheds there. The only uh, the only other track which is really uh, even anywhere near uh, being grade one, uh, which is the MotoG- Grand Prix. Uh, 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 up to Grand Prix standard would be would be Donington, and i um, uh, I know that the uh, MSV really want to race it, um, or they really want to have the British Grand Prix back at Donington, um, but I'm not sure that they're going to be ready next year.
0: Right, so interesting times ahead. Um, yeah, but I mean, the UK remains a pretty important market for dorna for sure. Yeah, but
1: there has always been a British Grand Prix since the beginning. Since 1949, there has been a British Grand Prix. The thought of Grand Prix racing without a British Grand Prix is it's as unthinkable as having uh, as not having an Italian Grand Prix. It is it's it is it's unthinkable. It's and it's not like the UK has you know four Grand Prixs like in Spain. It's it's just the one. So much of the the infrastructure of racing is still in the UK. So yeah, it's 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 unthinkable that there wouldn't be a race, but it's hard to see how it's going to happen.
0: Right, so distressing times really for uh, the British Grand Prix, and let's really hope that. Where, where uh, would you
1: some... where would you have the race then? Uh, I mean, if it's up to you, um, how wh- 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 ha- wh- what what? Yeah, how do we fix this, Neil? Tell me. Uh,
0: well, as an ordinary Irishman, um, there's a fantastic. Road circuit just outside Belfast called Dundrod. Of course, it used to be, used to host the, uh, the Ulster Grand Prix, which was around in the World Championship calendar back in the, uh, well, I think the early 50s, mid 50s, um, 60s as well. But, uh, but kind of joking aside, it's, uh, it's difficult to, it's difficult to really say. I mean, you know, Silverstone is the ideal venue, but with the, the current issues, um, as you say, it's difficult to see it being there. Um, if, Donington, maybe get the idea that there's a possibility of hosting it next year, Um I don't know whether MSV is in the position to to throw some money at it to 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 keep going with those facility upgrades. Um, I know they've, they've changed the paddock around and things like that, um, but you'd have to put your money on Donington, right?
1: It, you'd have to put your money your money on Donington, but I think Donington would demand a very long, uh, you know, they'd demand at least a five year contract to be able to. Uh, so they could at least attempt to make their money back on the uh, uh, on the investments w- uh, and, and upgrades which they would make. So, yeah, it's a difficult situation.
0: Yes, for sure, for sure. Okay, so that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion regarding the ins and outs of this year's uh, cancelled British Grand Prix, the first Grand Prix cancellation um, cancelled before any races started, uh, since 1980, all the way back in uh, back in the 80s uh, when we were still racing in Austria and the Salzburg Ring. Um, when, when
1: it snowed.
0: Yeah, when it snowed. So uh, that was uh, definitely a day of extremes. There, um, we're going to be back uh, in just a little moment with part two of the show. We're going to go through some news items that came out off the weekend, and we're also going to talk about our winners and losers. Yes, winners and losers in spite of no racing. So we'll be right back.
1: David Emmett here. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to this show on iTunes, please remember to leave us a review and rate us, as it really helps other fans find the show. Thanks a lot. Bye.
0: Okay, so welcome back to the second part of our show. Uh, we're going to keep this nice and brief and distinct. Uh despite, um, obviously, the the headline-grabbing news was what happened on Sunday, the fact we didn't have any racing. There were some pretty interesting things that happened at Silverstone, um, despite that, um, which I think we're going to talk about now. Pretty much the worst-kept secret in the paddock uh, was confirmed on Friday, David. We are going to have uh, 22 bikes on the MotoGP grid next year. Yamaha is indeed going to have a satellite team. And uh, it's not just... MotoGP team this is going to be one of those structures that uh, extends all the way down to the Moto3 class and indeed the FIM Junior World Championship the uh, the new SIC patronus backed uh, Yamaha satellite team
1: uh, yeah I mean I don't think we learned anything which we didn't already know Franco Morbidelli will be well it'll, it'll be Franco Morbidelli and uh, Fabio Quattararo on the on the Yamaha's uh, Morbidelli will basically be on a uh, factory bike, much along the lines of uh, Cal Crutchlow on the LCR Honda, uh, while Quattararo will be on the old bike. Lynn Jarvis has been very clear about that. It's simply a question of money. Hervé Pontreuil was never willing to uh, pay uh, pay the extra to get the upgraded uh, equipment, and. So, uh, yeah, Frank and Morbidelli will, it obviously they, they got, uh, the, the team got the run around a little bit because first of all, we thought it was going to be Lorenzo on the, uh, on the bike and then it was going to be uh, Pedrosa on the bike. Uh, uh, neither of those two decided to go in that direction. And we have instead, we have, uh, basically two young, talented riders who are believed to have an awful lot of, uh, potential. Um, uh, I wasn't actually at the press conference, so uh, Neil, was there anything there that we actually that you feel we that we learned?
0: Um, well, Lynn Jarvis confirmed that, as you mentioned there, uh, that Morbidelli will have an A spec bike, and inverted commas, hour will be on a B spec bike. And by A spec, he means that um, at Qatar uh, for the first race next year, Morbidelli's bike will be identical to Rossi and Vinales's. Then, as we go through the year. Rossi and Vinales will be one step ahead in terms of updates or upgrades. So if a new chassis comes, the factory guys will try it first. And if they like it, then I'm guessing at the next race or the next couple of races, that upgrade will find its way to Morbidelli. So he'll essentially be on the same bike, maybe with one step down or one step behind when the, the upgrades start coming, which I guess you could say is something similar to Crutzloh, Um and Crutztloh's role in Honda at the moment, whereas Cordoaro will basically be on... Uh, the bikes that Rossi and Vinales race at Valencia this year, that will be Cordova's bike for all of 2019. Um, so there'll be a clear difference there. We had it confirmed that uh, Wilco Zielenberg will be the team manager. He'll oversee everything. Um, Johan Stiggefeld, who's the current team manager of the Petronas Sprinter Model 2 Moto3 squads, he'll step up to be the team director, kind of overseer. Wilco will be the guy in the garage managing riders, tires, all the little interteam team specifics, and of course, Wilco has good experience of that um, from his days in the World Super Sport Championship. Um, and also, of course, the MotoGP as well, um, whenever he sort of overseen Lorenzo's side of the garage, um, back when uh, there was a wall down the middle of the garage with uh, with Rossi on the other side. Um, and what else? Yeah, Forcado will be uh, Morbidelli's crew chief. Morbidelli's current crew chief um, will be Quartararo's crew chief next year. And what we're going to see is essentially um, Yamaha cherry picked the the very best from the Mark VDS Motor GP squad. Obviously, that won't exist next year, um, and they have essentially uh, personnel that they can choose. They're taking the grid slots of the current uh, Team Angel Nieto squad, basically the the Aspor squad for the past few years. It doesn't seem that any of those guys will be uh, will be involved in the Yamaha structure. Any of the uh, Angel Nieto team guys. So it'll essentially be. Um, will be a new team, and Jarvis is quite open. He said that the factory are going to have to step in at Valencia this year, and there's also an official test at Harass at the end of November. Um, the factory's going to have to step in and just steady the ship because he knows it's going to be a bit chaotic, a bit crazy. A whole new team. They're going to have to basically operate out of Yamaha Hospitality and very much have the the movie star. Uh, manate, uh structure, kind of, with their their arms around them, just to guide them in the right direction. And he feels it will take a, a few, a bit of time to to get up and running. But um, they're really, they're really, really hopeful that someone of Forcada's experience um, can also be a really good guy to have on the ground there, who knows the bike inside out, who's worked with the M one for God knows how long, um, and can can push those guys in the right direction. Um, and they 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 feel that Morbidelli should not be too far away from what Zark has been doing the past year and a half on Yamaha, and uh, indeed what some of the other satellite guys, namely Crutchlow and Petrucci, have been doing. They feel they can be uh, top six runners. So, yeah, a few interesting tidbits. Um, yeah, not too much news that we didn't exactly know, but uh, um, yeah, a few interesting tidbits in there.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean the, the fact that it's going to be a uh, you know a complete structure with Moto2 and Moto3 as well was uh, interesting. John uh, Murphy obviously on the uh, Moto3 bike but because it was set up as a uh, as a way of bringing on Malaysian talent it's a, a little bit strange that I think Adam Noradin is going to back to the um, FIM TV
0: yeah exactly Yeah, he's stepping back to the FIM uh, well I guess what's now called the European uh, Moto2 Championship um, which is essentially the ex-Spanish uh, Moto2 Championship um, Noradin will be spending two years there with a handful of wild cards for the world championship team. Um, and yeah, they've gone with Umo Sasaki, who's the, the current um, Japanese Moto3 rider. And essentially Sasaki is a guy with a bit more pedigree, I think, than Noridan. Um Is wickedly talented, ex-Red uh, Bull rookie champion. What he did in that Red Bull Rookies Championship back in 2016, I think it was, was really mildly impressive. And he is very, very talented, to speak to his crew chief. Um, it's just more about him... Listening to directions, listening to advice, managing his race weekend in a certain way, going to the track, being confident, and following his own lines, doing that by himself. He doesn't seem to be at that age yet, he doesn't seem to be mature enough yet to to be a consistent competitor. But uh, yeah, I think they're kind of, okay, he's not Malaysian, but they're angling it to be a sort of Asian, Southeast Asian. Uh, squad where they can bring on talent from that area. Um, so it's not specifically Malaysian. And then, of course, they've got Carol Lidampawi, uh, the first ever Malaysian to win a Grand Prix as their sole Moto 2 entry. And it was quite interesting. They had hoped to have two Moto 2 entries as well. Had they got a second entry, uh, that space would have gone to uh, Sam Lowe's by the sounds of it. And uh, I was speaking to Johan Stiggerfeld after the, the presentation. He was saying the plan was Moto 2, Moto 3 to have Championship Challenger McPhee at Lowe's and then have the other spot as a place to, to nourish the, the Malaysian or uh, Japanese talent in uh, Sasaki, in Sasaki's case, um, to kind of nurture them and, and not take the pressure away from them in certain respects. Um, but yeah, pretty handy, pretty handy little uh, structure. Um, but I do think, you know, it's it's a massive undertaking for, for them to expand into MotoGP. And uh, yeah, by the sounds of it, it'll take a couple of races for them to get up and running and just you know the team that run smoothly and um, know how everyone operates and everyone knows their precise jobs and what to do through the weekend so that will be something really interesting to to keep an eye on
1: yeah what impressed me was the level of i mean the reason that this was so late in being um announced was because of the people uh the people who had to be at the uh, at the press conference we had the ceo of the Sepang circuit Raslan Rosali, obviously but we also had uh, the CEO of Patronus. We had the uh, Malaysian Minister of Sport. Um, these are very, very important people. And I think it's a, it really demonstrates the commitment of the Malaysian government of Patronus uh, to, to making this project work. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it might be a little bit of a difficult sort of first six months of the, of the project, but you have to think that um, they are going to make this work in the long term.
0: Yeah, certainly. When you look at the personnel out there getting on board, um, you would have to think that it's going to be long term. One of the uh, one of the toughest satellite projects around.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, yeah, and uh, Wilco Zielenberg, um uh, enormously smart talented um a great team manager knows how to run a team knows how to get the best out of people you have to think that yeah once they get underway it's going to be very very interesting to see it's also going to be interesting to see what he can do with fabio cuartoraro who's sort of you know uh, been very very up and down in terms of uh, personality but that seems to be more of a maturity issue than the, than a talent issue
0: yeah for sure and having the right people around him issue and um, having the right advice, basically. I think that's uh, one of the reasons why he got lost. Different people in his ear telling him to do different things. Um, Not really having a... Yeah, You look at some of the decisions he made with teams, for example, and you think, you know, was it right to move away from the straight Aletheia score at the end of 15? Was it right to move up to motor 2 in 17? Probably not. Um, but uh, he got surrounded by some people he could trust this year, in that speed-up garage, who trust him. And, you know, the results haven't been fantastic, but they've been pretty good in um, certain, um, some respects, basically from, uh, you know, from Magella onwards, I think uh, you could say that his results have been pretty good. Um, and that should be a nice little uh, rookie battle. He joins with uh, banyaya and uh, Miguel Oliveira, two of the leading names from uh, the Moto2 class this year.
1: Yeah exactly a rookie of the air championship is going to be it's going to be fantastic next year um uh, just those are some extremely talented riders i think also we learned that we will not be going to mexico after all next year
0: it seems mexico will be off the provisional calendar we had told that it would at least be on the provisional calendar and uh, not that it would be confirmed um but uh, it, yeah it seems that well, I guess to the surprise of no one really, anyone that watched the YouTube onboard lap of uh, one of the Formula One cars laps of that circuit um, it is far from ready, bike ready.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was told that, uh, by someone who should know that um, the uh, basically Dawner asked that um, uh, for a lot of changes, they wanted three buildings uh, uh, removed. Uh, the track said, "No, no, no. We can do that without. Uh, uh, we can make the track safe without without knocking down these buildings." They brought in a firm to try to do that. That company presented their plans uh, to the circuit. Circuit uh, presented them to Franco Uncini, the FIM safety officer, and Franco rejected them. And so. I would be surprised if there isn't a race in 2020 because they are very, very keen to actually go to Mexico. But it was just, it was just too much to ask in a relatively short period of time. I mean, we didn't learn about this until well, we didn't learn about this until Bruno.
0: Yes, and the Formula One race there in October, I think. So any renovations would have to start after the Formula One race, Um, and we're basically given. Well they're giving themselves what three or four months to to have everything built and done and approved, and then having riders to come and test on it and things like that um yeah too short a window it seems
1: yeah I mean and that was one of the that was one of the demands from the riders and the safety commission was they wanted to have a test there before um uh, if not a full test then at least a test by a few riders. Uh, uh, before the the track would be actually accepted onto the calendar uh, just so they can actually assess it because it's very difficult, um, you know, onboard videos from uh, from cars and actually riding around, there are two different things.
0: Yeah, I guess we should talk a little bit uh, quickly about the test riding situation. Seems to have been some movements in that respect. Um, I was reading a report yesterday on GP1.com. They said that, uh, well... Factory Yamaha has obviously been testing in Aragon this week, and there was a certain German who was there, um, fueling suspicions that he could be in line to step up to the uh, well testing role for Yamaha in two thousand and nineteen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is looking that it is looking like Jonas Folger is going to be the test rider or the European test rider for this newly newly to be set up a, a European test team for Yamaha. Uh, probably a good choice and probably a good idea because um, you know Jonas was. <laughs> uh plenty fast enough and it allows him to get back on a bike without the pressure of racing and the pressure seems to have been one of his problems it looks like um uh, Bradley Smith might be in play for the Aprilia testing role after uh, Aprilia were less than delighted with the things that Scott Redding said about the uh, about Aprilia at Austria
0: I wonder what it was they took issue with I can't quite <laughs> uh, put my finger on exactly yeah. Which uh, expletive laden part of that rant uh, they took issue with? But
1: that's right. I think it might have been every second word that they took uh, that they took issue with. But uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty. Um, it was it was pretty fierce. It, it, entirely justified as far as I can uh, tell. But um, you know, if, if factories don't like to be um, open to that kind of criticism, and obviously um, got posted um, a, an apology. Afterwards, on on Instagram, and was very very positive about it, and uh, even in uh, uh, even at Silverstone, was uh, were quite contrite about uh, uh, about the whole situation.
0: Yes, yes, and um, well, still decisions to be made regarding um, a pretty second test rider for next year, but that offer obviously is open to Danny Pedrosa um, and possibly some other names that have yet to be confirmed. But Pedrosa is certainly one of the guys they're talking to. Um, Bradley Smith said that he didn't want to um, essentially I think what has happened uh,
1: Pip Auer was saying back in
0: Austria is This is fond-
1: KTM not Aprilia right? Sorry? You, this is KTM you said you said Aprilia not KTM Did I? Apologies,
0: yes apologies uh, yes I meant Aprilia, sorry no I meant KTM, <laughs> <laughs> it's very late in the day Um Auer said that he's found with his own experience that when a t- the KTM test team goes to a circuit um and there is a race on the horizon there. What they do is they work for the race weekend because someone like Mika Calio, uh is essentially racing for uh, a full-time spot on the MotoGP grid. So it's in his interest to do as well as possible during those wildcards. He felt that that was in some way counterproductive because it took away from the, the general ethos of the testing program, which was let's do testing work. Let's not chase those fast lap times or let's not set the bike up specifically for this circuit. We have to do things that are, you know, just to evaluate this part or that part or whatever that is. So uh, I don't think KTM are too keen to run many wild cards with this testing, um, this second testing seat. Um,
1: and Danny Pedrosa would be perfect for that because, um, uh, you know, he doesn't want to race. He just wants to, um, sure. uh, you know, he he's retiring from racing.
0: And that essentially, well, what Bradley said, you know, he his intention is to get back on the grid as soon as possible as a full-time rider. Um, and the fact that there are no wild cards there meant that he was not going to go for that. So it should be interesting to see whether uh, whether Pedroza chooses that seat. Um, so, yeah, testing riders. looks like we're going to have Bradle at Honda, Folger at Yamaha, Pirro at Ducati, Smith on Aprilia, Calio and possibly Pedroza at KTM, and uh, Sylvain Gintoli at Suzuki.
1: Yeah, which is a pretty strong lineup considered. I mean, if you look back, I don't know, six, seven years ago, um, then the names would have been very, very different indeed. It would have been all Japanese riders on the Japanese um, uh, factories, and it would have been Franco Battini and Vito Goreski on the uh, on the Ducati and. Yeah, I mean, Pirro is considerably faster than Bassini and, and Gorowski were at the time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's a very different calibre of rider. Uh,
0: one final bit of news. Uh, Cal Crutzlow has extended his uh, factory deal with HRC. Um, so he is running until 2020. Is that a good move for both sides?
1: absolutely i mean you know he's still competitive he's the he's the second best honda rider he is there or thereabouts you know he's won a race this year um he's uh, been competitive he's consistently um one of the uh fastest independent teams i mean whenever whenever the, the park for may is full of Factory riders, uh, then it's quite often been Cal Crutchlow who's been in Park Vermeer as best independent rider. Uh, so yeah, it's and he d- does very valuable work for HRC. So um, as uh, as a as a test mule, um, so and it puts him in line with the other contracts, so that he can at the end of. Uh, at the end of um, 2020 he can sit back and decide whether he wants to retire or whether he has a shot at a factory seat or even just continue where he is
0: he did say that this would more than likely be his last contract but then i do seem to remember him saying that back in 2016 was it or maybe it was last the start of last year before he signed the, the factory deal with the current factory deal he's on he did say that uh, he couldn't see himself sticking around too much longer and uh well he's here two years longer than expected so that remains to be seen whether this will be his last contract but uh yeah, good to yeah see well, Cal.
1: Valentino Rossi is the uh, is the case in point he's had more uh, uh last contracts than um than Frank Sinatra had uh, had farewell uh tours so it's
0: nicely done yeah uh, He's worried you weren't going to get there in the end.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Um, But yeah, so uh, Ryder's saying, well, we'll see. Maybe at the end of this contract, I will retire. Um, I take that with a pinch of salt because it's not easy to actually stop. Uh, They're not doing it for the money. Uh, They're doing it to quell the competitive fire within them. And as long as that burns, it's really, really hard for them to stop. I mean, look at Jeremy McWilliams. He's still... Uh, he's still competitive look at Troy Bayliss you know the things that they do just to keep racing and to keep racing at a pretty high level um, uh, it's just it's just ridiculous so uh, I am taking all talk of retirement um, uh, with a very large pinch of salt
0: ok so there may have been no racing the Sunday just passed but we're still going to press ahead with our winners and losers from the race again that is the kind and sincere people that we are here at the paddock pass podcast we would never leave you shortchanged not even in a situation where there were no races to play <laughs> um david's your winner from the race weekend
1: well i think uh first of all um i think we have to give an honorable mention to the fans uh the fans As the winner not as the winner as I, th- th- we need a separate category of i don't know uh, heroes of the weekend the heroes of the weekend were the fans and the marshals and everyone who sat out there for hours and hours and hours waiting for something to happen honestly i was impressed at their commitment you know they they sat there and they waited patiently and they didn't set things on fire and um, or or you know invade the track or anything like that uh, they he, he, he sat and waited and i was Seriously, seriously impressed uh, by their um, enthusiasm and their and their behaviour. So I think we've got to say that. Um, uh, as for winners, um, I think the only the, the, the winner for me is Mark Marquez because you know a race down uh, he was looking like he was in trouble. He was looking like he could have lost points to uh, the Yamahas, maybe certainly to the Ducatis. Um, uh, it, it wouldn't have made his championship more difficult but this made this made his championship an awful lot easier
0: Difficult to disagree with that I think uh, Silverstone and Mugello really this year are the only two places where we've seen Marquez I mean struggling is putting it a bit strongly but uh, certainly not uh, one of the pre-race favourites for sure um, I think Mugello you could also say that it was a tough weekend for him Um and it, yeah, it's pretty rare that we've we've seen that. All you know, such as being the the strength of him and the uh, two thousand and eighteen on the RC two one three V. Um But yeah, I, I agree with you, David. I think Marquez was quite fortunate, and got off the hook somewhat, Um Lorenzo and Davizioso were certainly poised to claw some more back, uh, ground back on him in the championship. Um, I think my winners, I'm going to go for two, uh, big winners from the weekend, and I'm basically going to echo the, your sentiments. I'm going to say that, uh, Miguel Oliveira in the Moto 2 class, and Marco, Bus- or, sorry, Jorge Martin in the Moto 3 class, because, uh, essentially those are guys that might have been in a little bit of trouble had the race went ahead. Um, Miguel Oliveira qualified a really dismal 23rd. Now, even by this season's standards, that was a lousy qualifying, and he has had some shockers on a Saturday afternoon. Um, but uh, yeah, 23rd, Pekka is main rival for the title, who won the last race after a thrilling last lap fight with him. Uh, he was on pole position, um, so I think Oliver got himself very lucky indeed that um, the race was cancelled and he goes to the following race at Mizana with a two point, three point disadvantage, I think we can say. And Jorge Martín, you might be saying, okay, he was on pole position, what are you talking about? But I think... You know his one-lap speed is never in doubt, but uh, a full race distance uh, is another thing altogether. Um, he was saying during practice that Silverstone was a lot more difficult for his injured left wrist than uh, the uh, the Aust. I almost said the one ring, the Red Bull Ring in Austria. That obviously just had two left-hand turns. Uh, this one here at Silverstone, I think there's eight left-hand turns. Um, and a lot of bumps, and that would have been a really difficult over a full race distance. Obviously in the rain as well, um, could have been quite tough for Jorge Martín, whereas championship rival Marco Pasecki is a fantastic weather rider. Um, so I think both of those guys um, can I themselves lucky that they didn't see uh, their championship deficits increased.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, the, the, the point is, we had eight races uh, left. Uh, there are now seven races left, and the point standings are the same. And so, um, uh, basically, the uh, the championship leaders are all twelve and a half percent better off than they were um, uh, than they were before they started Silverstone. So, um, yes, yes, hard to go to go with that. You're loser, David. Losers. Yeah, I think I am going to have to go with Silverstone because. No matter whose fault it is, we don't know whose fault it is. I don't want to sit here and assign blame. Um, this was a monumental, colossal cock up of the worst possible sort. However, whatever the sequence of events were, um, this was uh, horrendous and it's a circuit which is struggling financially is not going to come out of this better off they're not going to come out of it um uh, having made money i mean i expect all of the fans to be compensated but and and someone's going to have to pay and that's probably going to be an insurer rather than silverstone um but it's still going to be just an absolutely monumental mess and it reflects it doesn't reflect well on uh, the circuit. You know, the, the Silverstone, this is going to go down in history as is the, is the GP that was cancelled because it rained in, in England.
0: Yes, that is not really good luck, is it? The first uh, race cancellation, as we previously mentioned, since 1980 in the Premier Class. Um, and while I think it almost exploded itself, I think I'll have to go with Tito Rabat because he's the guy that really, um, well, came out worst, all this uh, serious leg injury. Um, yeah really really ugly and painful Um, fantastic to see him up on his feet and walking again has to be said but Tito is the guy that well um, possibly might not race again this year Um, so yeah, he was the one that really took uh, the brunt of that bad luck in the middle of the on FP4
1: yeah, I mean, again, hard to argue with that because he's just been, uh, you know, he's been, he's been transformed since he got off the Honda and onto the, uh, onto the UK. He's had some pretty decent performances. He's shown some decent form. Um, and yeah, to go out like that is tough. I would like to add a an honorary um, uh, again an honorary set of losers, and that's the 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 fans again uh, who sat there in the rain for no rewards to see nothing. Um, so yeah, they did certainly didn't deserve that. But then again, I mean, this is the absolutely the last thing that anyone, the riders, uh, Silverstone, the circuit, the teams, nobody wanted. Nobody wanted this outcome. So yeah.
0: Okay, nobody wanted this outcome, and I think our listeners didn't want this outcome, because that's right, guys, it's the end of this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. We're very, very sad and sorry to leave you, but, uh well, we can reassure you that we'll be back very soon with a new shiny episode, hopefully, where we will be talking about some racing, unlike today. Um, so David I would like to thank you for your time and for your fine efforts if you want a detailed rundown of the events on Sunday I would highly encourage you to go to David's website modomatters.com and to read his Sunday report every detail is in there and uh, well no stone was left unturned in uh, our, uh, our fine journalist quest to uh, uncover the exact details and the truth of what went on David thank you very much thank you very much indeed Neil and we shall be speaking to you soon, possibly from the uh, the, the Balmier reaches of the Adriatic coast um, where Mizano lies. And uh, yeah, what well, promises to be a pretty fun uh, 13th round of the 2019 season. We're getting pretty serious about all the championships now. Pretty sure we're going to have three good races there. Let's hope it stays dry. And uh, well, thanks very much, listener. Now is around the time where we do our normal procedure of directing you towards our Twitter page which is at uh, Twitter or no sorry it is at the Paddock Pass pod correct our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast correct and that lovely little uh, app which you use to find your podcasts Apple listening devices or other such forms if you could leave us a little review on that even if it's just a thumbs up even if it's a certain star rating Um, that really helps other listeners find our show so that would be really much appreciated as well that's it from us speak to you next time bye I hope that was sufficient JB
1: I should do another clap just to fucking confuse him
0: (laughs) you don't want to confuse JB (laughs) Um, okay then So.